what would Jesus look at and say they gave what they had, but it is beautiful. The alabaster woman is good news. So if we can't understand the woman's actions, then we don't understand Jesus. Jesus says, leave her alone. She has done is beautiful. Welcome to Campus House. I'm Ralph, super pumped to be with you today. Um, we've been in a series called The Jesus Way or The Way of Jesus or On the Way, some combination of those words. <laughs> and uh, today we're going to be in Mark 14, so if you have your Bibles, um, you can jump there, put a little bookmark if you want. Um, before we dive in, and as I'm about to say this, I'm recognizing how much cheesier it is in person than in my head, but uh, I, I want to give you a little road map um, for our day, um, not in the normal sense, but I think sometimes when we get this uh, big chunk of time to just listen, it's pretty easy to lean on our strengths, and so uh, if we are someone who's primarily an emotional person, we're going to listen for those nuggets that speak to that. If we're a primarily analytical person, we're going to read through that lens the whole time. So in this recognition of, you know, what Jesus spoke uh, when he said, what's the greatest command? He said, love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So if we're going to look at ourselves as that whole kind of person, um, I want to come at the passage today from each of those kind of angles. And so it's not to say shut all the other ones off, but maybe like move one into the lead. Um, and so we're going to use my little hat stand here as a cheesy way to kind of like bring us into that kind of way of thinking about the passage. So we're going to start with emotions, and I've got a little sailor hat because ocean is emotion, I guess. Uh, so we're going to put that one in the lead. We'll come back to it. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to physically get down here. Hopefully it doesn't make me too out of breath. But I'm going to physically get down so we know that we're making the transition um, yeah, so there's that. I apologize if that is just beneath you, which it probably is. Before we begin, uh, I want to set the stage for Mark 14 that we're going to be in. Um, and so I want to name uh, what's going on in the passage and even give what Mark is saying at the very beginning so that we can then see it kind of coming up as we go. So this chapter in Mark, Mark 14, is the transitional story in Mark's gospel. So Jesus' ministry, you get chapter 1 to 13, and then you get chapter 14, which we're going to be in, and then the rest of Mark is the passion narrative. And so the way that this story functions in the gospel of Mark is that everything Mark said in chapter 1 to 13 and everything he says in the passion narrative is boiled down and distilled into the essence of the story that we're going to read today. The message of Mark is in the message of Mark 14. So what is this message? Um, it's that Mark breaks all the characters in this story into two categories. And these categories have to do with planning, um, designing, ordering, and arranging things. But it can be done in two ways. So the first way is what I just call plotting. All right, it kind of so sounds more sinister, right? Your plotting is the self-gratifying 
uh, material grasping, fear-driven scheming that we associate with the powers of darkness, the ways that are against what God is doing in the world. And the alternative to that is preparing, right? And so preparing is the self-giving, radically forgiving, co-suffering love of the kingdom of God. And so anytime you hear those stories, think of those kind of characteristics, right? So the plotting is this self-gratifying, fear-driven reality. Preparing is this co-suffering love of the kingdom. And so throughout the story, Mark 14 issues a challenge. Who do you give your allegiance to? The preparing way of Jesus that we see fully demonstrated in the alabaster woman, and so we'll see that in the story, or do we follow the plotting way of the powers that we see represented in the betrayal of Judas? So let's read Mark 14, and remember we're in the emotion hat, so I want you to, to listen to Jesus' invitations speaking to, to your emotion. And if you're an analytical person, I promise we're going to get there. So just, if you can, put this kind of in the lead. Um, and I'm actually going to put this up on the screen. Um, this is my translation, so I know I told you to get your, your Bibles out. But the first time through, I want you to hear some of these words, because I want to highlight some stuff that Mark is trying to draw us to. Um, and if you would put yourselves in the perspective of the disciples, um, and we'll kind of get to why in a little bit. But from their perspective, would you kind of let the story, the emotion of the story, draw you in and invite Jesus to speak to your emotions as we digest the story? This is Mark chapter 14, verse 1. Now it was two days before Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. And the Sanhedrists, those ruling priests and experts of the law, were plotting to arrest Jesus incognito and put him to death. But not during the festival, they said, unless we want a riot on our hands. Now, while Jesus was in Bethany, reclining at table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman approached him carrying an alabaster jar of precious aromatic amber oil, and she crushed the jar and poured the nard on his head. But some at the table plotted indignantly among themselves, why would you waste the ointment? It could have been sold for a year's wages and given to the poor. And they chastised her harshly. But Jesus said, let her be. Why are you harassing her? What she has done to me is a work of beauty. For the poor will always need your kindness, but I am with you only a short while. She gave what she had, an anointing of my body, a preparation for burial. Truly, I say to you, anywhere the good news is announced, in the whole of the earth, what this woman has done will be told in her memory. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, left them and sought out the Sanhedrin so that he might betray Jesus into their hands. Hearing this, they were gleeful and promised a payment in silver. So he plotted for an opportunity to betray Jesus. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the day the paschal lamb is sacrificed, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go to make preparations for the Passover meal? So he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go into the city, you'll find a man carrying a jar of water, follow him. Say to the owner of the home he enters, the teacher asks, where's my lodging where I might eat Passover meal with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. Make our preparations there. So the disciples parted to the city, finding everything as he told them, and they prepared Passover meal. 
Now, when it was evening, Jesus arrived with the 12. And while they were reclining at table, eating, he said to them, truly I say to you, one among you will betray me. Yes, one who is eating with me now. They were deeply disturbed at this, and one by one they said to him, surely, not me. But he said to them, it is one of the twelves, one sharing a cup with me. For just as it is written, the Son of Man will go, but alas for the man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be more honorable for him had he never been born. While they were eating, he took some bread, he blessed it, he broke it into pieces, and he gave it to them, saying, take it, this is my body prepared for you. And giving thanks, he took a cup and gave it to them. They drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant prepared for the many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink of this vineyard's harvest before the day I drink a new vintage in the kingdom of God. And singing together, they left for the Mount of Olives. You sit in this for just a moment. Let God stir your emotions. What? Is the Spirit speaking to you? I'm going to read just that middle story again with the Alabaster Woman. If you could even just close your eyes, I just want to read this again. Lord, what are you stirring in us right now? Now, while Jesus was in Bethany reclining at table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman approached him carrying an alabaster jar of precious, aromatic amber oil. And she crushed the jar and poured the nard on his head. But some at the table plotted indignantly among themselves, why would you waste this ointment? It could have been sold for a year's wages, given to the poor. And they chastised her harshly. But Jesus said, let her be. Why are you harassing her? What she has done to me is a work of beauty. For the poor, they will always need your kindness, but I am with you only a short while. She gave what she had, an anointing of my body, a preparation for burial. Truly, I say to you, anywhere the good news is announced in the whole of the earth, what this woman has done will be told in her memory. And then Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, left them, and sought out the Sanhedrin so that he might betray Jesus into their hands. Hearing this, they were gleeful and promised a payment in silver. So he plotted for an opportunity to betray Jesus. What is God speaking to you in this moment? If there's anything meaningful, I'd encourage you, jot it down, come back to it. Lord, keep speaking to us as we listen. All right, so that's Mark 14. Remove our emotional hat. (laughs) And now uh, we're going to move on to our analytical lens, all right? temporarily, let us lead in this way. Let's engage what's going on in this passage. There's so much packed into here, and uh, this, it's really exciting to me, so I apologize if it's, if it's too, too nerdy, but it's good, all right? So 
one of the things that's going on in Mark is that the message or the way that Mark is writing, what's going on in the passage is actually part of the message. All right, so we can't, we can't just skip over the, the art, the rhetoric that he's using because he's actually telling us something and how he's doing it. So first, let's take a look at the theme. All right, so we've got preparers and plotters, preparing and plotting. Those plotters are the self-gratifying, material-grasping, fear-driven schemers. And then on the other side, you have the preparers are the self-giving, radically forgiving, co-suffering, love kind of people. So on the plotting side, we've got the Sanhedrists. All right, so these are the political and religious elite in the Jewish world. And they are the ones who are in charge of brokering the peace between the Jewish people and Rome. All right, so Rome is this giant empire who's occupying this whole region. And they're letting the Jewish people kind of live their way of life, but they've got to keep the peace. If there is any sort of rebellion or uprising, it will be squashed. And so the Sanhedrists are the ones who are brokering this peace. And we see them right at the beginning of the passage. They're plotting to kill Jesus. But the Passover and the festival are about to happen, and so they are conflicted. They're conflicted because Jerusalem in this season is a tumultuous place. During Passover, this Roman-occupied city becomes this cauldron of contrasting desires and vested interests. All right, so Rome has no tolerance for rebellion, right? But the Jewish diaspora, the, the Jewish people who are scattered into all these other parts of the world are coming into Jerusalem, right? We're talking millions of people coming into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, And the Passover is a festival that celebrates what? It celebrates their liberation from Egypt and the destruction of their oppressors, right? So they're rehearsing the the foundational story of the Hebrew people, which is that God delivers slaves and the oppressors get crushed by the Red Sea. So I, I don't know if, like, if you can just imagine, I'm sure you can't picture any sort of tension in the political world at all, but if you can imagine these oppressed people gathering into a giant crowd celebrating this festival of liberation and the Roman city, or the Roman soldiers are gathered around ready to crush any sign of rebellion. And so the Sanhedrists are really, really interested in making sure nothing sparks this gasoline. Josephus, who's a Jewish historian, he talks about the Sanhedrist as this bullying, aristocratic priest. They're priests with no toleration during these festivals. And we find them here plotting to snatch Jesus secretly and silence him, but they gotta do it without upsetting the people without sparking a riot and offending their ultimate masters, which is Rome. And so in the story, the Sanhedrists represent the embodiment of political and religious coercion. All right, they're, they're a power which will grasp at anything to keep themselves in power. They will align with any beastly empire to get their own. They're the true plotters in the story, and if Mark understands that the readers will know that this is the case. And so that brings us to Judas. So the fact that Judas betrays Jesus by colluding with 
these Sanhedrists is a stark signal that Judas in the story represents the archetype, this, the profound example for human participation with the plotting powers in the world. Judas represents the human potential for darkness. And the author of Mark is imploring you, do not be like this man. And we'll see this played out as we go. And then this brings us to the disciples. All right, so the disciples are interesting. I, I love Mark. He, he has, he's very ambivalent about the disciples. Um, they never quite get anything right, but they also never quite go all the way uh, into the dark side. <laughs> um, and so that's what we see in this story. And he does this because the disciples represent not these superhuman, uh, like powerful heroes. They are the dynamic possibility of human participation. We have, it, the disciples show us that we have potential to be like Judas, but we also have potential to be like the alabaster woman. And so they sit here in the middle. Sometimes they plot against the woman indignant about her lavish, lavish worship. And then at other times, they're joining with Jesus to prepare the Passover meal. They're right there in the middle. That brings us to the preparers, the true ones. So we've got the alabaster woman, and, and she's going to be the central thing that we look at at the rest of the time. And she, in this story, represents the human potential for goodness and beauty and deep honor. And Mark is entreating his listeners, see this woman. Be like this woman. And obviously we come to Jesus, who is the backdrop of the whole story, and in the climax at the end, leading right up to the Last Supper in the upper room, Jesus retells his story, his identity, his purpose, and he prepares his disciples for the kind of king he's going to be and the kind of followers that that kind of king requires, which is a preparing kind. And so Mark, the whole story, communicates this theme, and it happens even in the structure of the story itself. All right, so to show you that, I need to teach you this word, Intercalation, all right? Intercalation. This is the idea that when you place a story in the middle of another story, and then that middle story interprets the one it gets placed in. If you want to throw those slides up there, Joe. <clears throat> yes, just like that. So you see this playing out here. Right, so he takes the main story, Mark 14, 1 to 2, and 12 to 26, and sandwiched right in the middle is the alabaster story, 14, 3 to 11. Mark does this all throughout his gospel, and uh, scholars even give a name for it. They call it the Mark and Sandwich, which is a better name, and it goes great with mustard. Um, but this, this way of talking, what it does is it means that the middle story interprets the, others, the, the story that it's placed in. And this actually has something profound to say about Mark's message. By narrating the story this way, what Mark is telling us is that we have to pay attention to the alabaster woman. Because only if you understand that story do you understand what Jesus is doing in the upper room. Said another way, the alabaster woman becomes the message Jesus speaks to his disciples in the upper room. She becomes the message Jesus speaks to his disciples. The alabaster woman is good news. 
Another way that Mark communicates this preparing and plotting theme is through these sensory details. So just listen to these words. Engage your senses. Call to mind these beautiful and disgusting things, all right? So first with the plotters, just hear, hear these words. They're sly, harsh, indignant, fearing, delighting at betrayal, scheming, watching, waiting, prowling, right? It just, you feel gross reading those words. And this stands in stark contrast to the imagery of the preparers. Listen to this phrase, carrying an alabaster jar of precious aromatic amber oil, and she crushed the jar and poured the nard on his head. And more, there's a work of beauty, a lasting memory, good news, tearing and giving fresh bread, pouring out wine, pouring out life, singing together. It goes on and on. And so how this works is that Mark's words create this sensory setting that elevates the woman to a place of emulation. Be like this woman. And it heightens the disgust the reader feels towards Judas as an example of what not to follow. Do not be like that guy. In quite a similar way, we, can, we actually can't quite get the force of what Mark is saying unless we understand some honor-shame language. And this goes all throughout the story. But uh, Bruce Longenecker, who studies the ancient world, says that status capture, which is just this idea of pursuing honor and fleeing from shame, is the most important social phenomenon of the ancient Roman world, the most important phenomenon. It goes on, it is the bedrock of every social interaction that you see in scripture, is this honor, shame, status capture. And the contrast between plotters and preparers in the passage only makes sense when honor and shame are understood. So let's look at two examples. So for the alabaster woman, Jesus says that her actions will be told throughout the world and that her memory her legacy will be lasting. This is intense honor culture language. And Jesus is giving this woman incredible honor, highlighting her as his kind of person. In contrast, when Jesus speaks of the one who will betray him, and the audience knows that this is Judas, he uses an idiomatic phrase, it would be better for him had he not been born. In Jewish as well as Greco-Roman society, this is an honor-shame bash. And it doesn't mean that Jesus is saying he literally wishes Judas had never been born or didn't exist, but rather that in a culture which so highly valued honor, to act as Judas does is a form of death itself. And furthermore, the ancient norms in the ancient world did not, uh, sorry, the social norms, did not permit most women to compete for this kind of honor. But Jesus elevates her above any other character, not just in the story, but in the entire gospel of Mark. This is the most important character next to Jesus in Mark's gospel. The last element I want to look at before we draw this together is the economic language present all throughout the passage. Look at how money and materials are used to emphasize this theme. Right, so we have a woman with the jar of expensive perfume. We don't know how she got it, but some say it's a family possession, a symbol of their status, or even perhaps a dowry which would be taken with her into her marriage. Essentially, it is the most valuable possession of her family. 
But regardless, all we know is that it is, it's worth about a year's wages, right? That's what the disciples are saying. Like, oh man, that's a lot of money. And this contrasts in the very next verse with the disciples who are grumbling with this stingy indignation at the wastefulness of the woman. And Jesus invites his followers to reassess what is truly valuable. He takes their material economic motivations and he invites them into a kingdom kind, a kingdom economic expectation. He invites them to move from plotting to preparing. And then it is no mistake that the narrative moves right into Judas's betrayal, where he betrays Jesus in exchange for money. And this is a capstone for, for us, for the audience. It's the last nail in the coffin. It's a whiplash of sorts, right? Moving rapidly from one kind of person to the next. Moving from material to kingdom economic posture, from kingdom economic posture back to material, from the lavish gift of the woman to the greedy scheming of Judas. And Mark invites us to change our perception. So let's draw this together, removing our analytical hat, which I know for some of you, it's quite difficult, so make your best effort. <laughs> and uh, we're gonna move into the heart, this, the spiritual place where we can, we can hear what God is doing in our lives. I have four, four things that I feel like God, God is highlighting in this passage for us today. And if, you, if you're a note-taking kind of person, you can write these four things down. First thing is, look at this woman. Look at the woman. The alabaster woman is the invitation. She gave her material and social capital. <laughs> she was over the top, lavish, reckless. But do you know what Jesus didn't say? You're too much. I'm not sure if anyone needs to hear this today, but Jesus is saying to you, you are not too much for me. And the voices, the lies in your head that say you are too much, you are too needy, too burdensome, too overbearing, too intense, Jesus says, leave her alone. What she has done is beautiful. Look at this woman. The alabaster woman mirrors Jesus she represents the gospel hope of humanity. We can be like that woman. What is fascinating is that she is described using Mark's signal word, diakoneo, which means servant. And this is a word that is spoken about Jesus' salvific purpose in the world, a servant. So being a servant is Mark's code word for the Jesus way. Nicoletta Gatti, who's a Ghanaian scholar, she puts it this way. These two gestures, the gesture of Jesus as a servant and the gesture of the woman as a servant are actually one gesture. 
It's the willingness of God to love humanity in the Son. And the possibility for humanity expressed in this woman to give up everything to respond to his unconditional love. Let me read that again. These two gestures as servant are actually one single gesture, the willingness of God to love humanity in the Son and the possibility for humanity expressed in the woman to give up everything to respond to his unconditional love. The alabaster woman represents both an invitation and a hope that humanity can, like the woman, follow Jesus' preparatory way. Look at this woman. The second invitation, give what you have. That line in verse eight, man, it just, it got me this week. <laughs> she gave what she had. Why do you harass her? She gave what she had. My wife told me a story this week. Her and a friend were getting coffee and on the way back to the car, um, a homeless man came up to her and her friend and she said his posture was just uh, really meek and he was embarrassed. <laughs> he said, I, I have never done this before and I have fallen on some hard times and I'm hungry. Like, do you, do you have anything? And so my wife gave, gave what she had. She had a $10 bill and she's like, I hope this is enough for today. You could have some lunch and dinner. And he got this look on his face, and he said, oh, I, I couldn't. <laughs> See, I have, I have a friend, and he's in the same place, and he's hungry too. So how could, I, how could I use all of this for myself? So he took <laughs> the $10, and he shared it with his friend. He gave, he gave what he had, I think we look at that and we go, you don't have any extra, right? Like, you have enough for today. Um, but he gave what he had. And he, to me, that, that is a revelation of the kingdom of God. So my question to you is, what do you have? I'm going to let hit that story. I'm not going to interpret that story for you. But what do you have? What is the way that you participate in God's new creation? What would Jesus look at and say they gave what they had? What, what, it was beautiful. Give what you have. Third thing, Jesus is a better king. We serve King Jesus. But what kind of king is he? We sing that Jesus is king of our heart. That's great. But which, which Jesus? Because if he looks just like the other kings, then that is not good news. Jesus is not just another tyrant. The good news is that our king is unlike any other king. He looks like the Sermon on the Mount. He looks like Philippians 2. He looks like the cross. Alan Cole said, if Judas could not understand the woman's action, then he was not going to be able to understand the cross. So if we can't understand 
the woman's actions, then we don't understand Jesus. And the, the anointing that the woman did, this, she anointed him. It calls to mind the practice of the Hebrew prophets who would anoint Israel's ancient kings. So as she anoints him, it meant Jesus is our Messiah. Jesus is the king. The king has come. But Jesus interprets this kingly gesture in a radical way. It's a profound reversal because he said, she has anointed me for burial. So yes, we serve Jesus the king. Yes, he is the Messiah. Yes, this was his anointing. But Mark 14 tells us that the king that we serve is a preparatory servant king whose ascension is the cross, whose throne is a tomb. And those allegiant to him must follow him not just in his name, not just by making him king of their heart, but by taking up his very path. Mark's gospel is not just uh, informational. It's, uh, the only word I can think is it's apocalyptic. It means that God is breaking into the world. Mark has in mind a cosmic view. This way of thinking sees God's activity in the world as a dramatic redemption of all things, out from under the rule of darkness, in a cosmic struggle. So this elevates the invitation. Mark is begging the reader to join King Jesus and the alabaster woman, not for better quiet times, not just for being nicer, better citizens, but that through taking on the radical preparing way of Jesus, you're joining in the battle for new creation. God is making all things new, and we are called to be witnesses and partners in that activity. And this is possible because Jesus is a better king. He's a better king. Fourth invitation, know your potential. Know your potential. First, first of all, plotting is actually the default. And so we can't pretend like it's something that we have to choose to do. Our natural disposition in the world, if we're part of its systems, part of its structure, our natural posture is going to be one of plotting. Our natural posture is one in which we arrange and coerce and control others, control the world around us for our own needs. And if you look, if you reflect at all, I think you're going to see that that's true. What motivates you? What, what's your natural posture when you try and interact with someone else? Is it for your own gain? It's our default. Our default is plotting. But we have potential for a different kind of life. Preparing is an alternative way of being in the world. It's a spirit-empowered transformation of our perception so that we can see a cross-shaped way of life, which the world looks at and calls foolishness, it's actually the way of life, the true way to be human. And that is why the woman is good news. Because the one with no status, the one who's silenced by the in-group, the one who breaks the social boundaries, forfeits her material and social capital, this is the one Jesus honors above all the rest. Jesus, by his spirit, is making all things new. 
includes humanity. We get to join in the work. Ephesians 1, God made known the mystery of his will, his good pleasure, which is to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. To bring unity to all things. And we get to participate, be part of that unity. That's our potential. (laughs) Know our potential. So lastly, I want to invite the band up. Switch one last time to being an embodied people. I'm going to worship with, with our bodies. Encounter Jesus with our, our whole selves. And as we look at the upper room, we find a tender Jesus whose eyes are blazing, set on the cross ahead of him. And he gives the disciples an encounter with himself in the form of the Eucharist, form of communion. And as he does this, it's not just for his disciples, it's also for all of his disciples, for all generations to come, anyone who would follow him, those allegiant to King Jesus. He gives this as a means of encountering him for generations. And he goes through the Passover meal, this meal that would be so familiar to the disciples, but he reinterprets it as his own life, his own mission, his own purpose. He is the taken, the chosen Messiah of God. He is the blessed, the truly beloved son of the Father. He is the one broken by the plotting of generations and systems of darkness and evil. And he is given for the salvation, healing, deliverance, and restoration of the whole cosmos. As we go, I want us to soak in these words from Henry now. Let's do this as a a communal prayer. These four moments, taken, blessed, broken, given, they're the very core of the walk of the beloved with God. It is our lifelong journey to be taken, broken, blessed, and given. So I wanna read these phrases and can we pray them as a response? Go to that next slide, there you go. Being taken is the basis for being the beloved. It is a lifelong struggle to claim our belovedness, but also a lifelong joy. We are taken. A blessing goes beyond the distinction between admiration or condemnation, between virtues or vices, good deeds or evil deeds. A blessing touches the original goodness of the other, calls forth his or her belovedness. All these people yearn for a blessing, and that blessing can be given by those who have heard it themselves. We are blessed. Our brokenness is so visible and tangible, concrete and specific that it is often difficult to believe there is much to think, speak, or write about other than our brokenness. But the great secret of the spiritual life, the life of the beloved sons and daughters of God is that everything we live, be it gladness or sadness, joy or pain, health or illness, can all be part of the journey for the full realization of our humanity. We are broken. it becomes clear that we are taken blessed and broken not simply for our own sakes but so that all we live finds its significance and it's being lived for others we are called to become bread for one another 
bread for the world. We are given. Now, does that sound like the message of the alabaster woman? Taken, blessed, broken, and given. It's the preparatory way of Jesus as seen in the woman. This is the purpose of Mark's story, to call all humanity to participate in new creation by following the preparatory way of King Jesus in the alabaster woman. So let's go from here, taken, blessed, broken, and given. Join Jesus and be bread for the world for one another.